Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast, where we are growing stronger and more capable men. We believe that every man can be a good man, and we are here to help men on their journey to become new men. These men will become better at leading themselves and better at leading in their homes and workplaces. Paul the Apostle gave the command to put on the new man. On this podcast, I interview people who become new men relationally, physically, spiritually, or intellectually. This happens through their stories of stretching, grit, and determination. We want the good, the bad, and the ugly, so we all can become better men. So let's get after it. Hey gentlemen, this is Chad Zook, the host of the New Kind of Man podcast. I am grateful that you're listening today. And you are in for a treat. I recently had a conversation with Nick Norris, who was a Navy SEAL for almost 11 years. And he was also a Naval Academy graduate. And in this conversation, we talk about a wide range of things, everything from leadership to uh, his home life now and how he had a near-death experience that has really taught him to live in the present. And that's at the back end of this conversation. So listen to this all the way through. I know this this podcast is longer form than usual. I was tempted to break it up into two different things, but the conversation was flowing so well. So I think that when you listen to it, that you'll appreciate it, even though it's almost an hour and a half long. But uh, I think you'll also appreciate the fact that I didn't break this up. So enjoy this podcast, gentlemen. Share this with somebody who needs some encouragement, somebody who is not living in the present, maybe somebody who's stuck and they're feeling a little hopeless, maybe a little depressed, a little down. Reach out to them, share this podcast, and I believe that you will find Nick's uh, his message refreshing, encouraging, and just invigorating for a man to go live his best self. So now let's dig into the conversation I had with Nick Norris. Well, this is the New Kind of Man podcast, and today we have the special treat of having on Nick Norris. And Nick Norris has an interesting story for all of us, and his life has been really multifaceted. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have Nick on the show, and we contacted or I contacted him a couple of months ago and we spoke it was that Nick says that he's a normal guy but what we're going to hear is uh, he has a very abnormal story so we want to know why he calls himself a normal guy after he's done some extraordinary things so Nick welcome to the show thanks so much for having me Chad yeah my pleasure hey if uh you know people may or may not know you so just give us a little rundown what's your like family background where are you from and stuff like that Sure. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood on the south side of the city. Um, I, you know, I, I went to kind of a local public school for the first uh, six grades, uh, which I, I talked about this with a friend on a podcast earlier this week, and I, I don't think I mentioned it uh, previous to that. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't like kind of the normal athlete uh, growing up. I, I went to a and uh, a, a gifted magnet, magnet program when I was a little guy and had zero interest in athletics. Or I guess, I mean, I, I, I had interest in athletics. I just wasn't an athlete. Yeah. And uh, so I did that initially and then ultimately transferred into kind of the local Catholic school uh, and started into sports, um, which then took me into high school. I wrestled growing up in high school and you know, aspired to join the military and, and namely the SEAL teams, probably since I was in seventh grade. Mm. And that kind of led me on a, a path to the Naval Academy and then 
I ultimately to SEAL training. And then I had the, the privilege of serving in the SEAL community for uh, just under 11 years before I made the decision to get out in 2013. And, uh, and that has taken me kind of on a, a very interesting path since departing active duty service. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately I find myself here today in a, in, in a, a, a much different place than I was uh, three, four years ago. So that that's that's in a nutshell uh, who I am and where I came from, Jad. Cool. Yeah, I know a little bit of your story from three or four years ago, so we'll probably cycle back to that a little bit later in the conversation. But so the South Side of Chicago didn't uh, your early upbringing was not you know in a very athletic setting, um, a magnet school that doesn't spell like you know college bound division division one athlete right there. So uh, and obviously that's when you're younger. But uh, in, yeah, that was a really funny thing is like when we talked before, you're like, yeah, I'm just like a, I'm just a normal guy and I'm not much of an athlete. I'm like, hello. Uh, all right. So you rock climbing, you boulder, you're an ultra marathoner, you uh, completed buds and you were a functioning Navy SEAL for over a decade. Like you've done some other cool stuff too. And I think that qualifies as having some sort of athleticism. I mean, come on, give us a break. I hate it. I like, I, I'm proud of all the stuff that I've been able to do, uh, but I, I still stick to the fact that I don't feel like I'm an incredible athlete. I feel like I, I am very fortunate to have grown up in a household where, you know, my dad and the people around me that helped raise me um, really instilled some, some sound values, you know, namely discipline, uh, hard work, you know, kind of personal accountability. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the stuff that, you know, I, I definitely, maybe I had an unfair competitive advantage as it relates mm-hmm. to that early in my life, which has allowed me to persevere and commit to some of these things that, that I pursued in athletics. And, I, and I've got somewhere, right? I'm always searching to, to get better at any of the things that I'm, I'm doing uh, at the moment. And, uh, you know, I just, I just stay committed. It, it definitely takes me a lot longer and I probably put in a lot more work than uh, the typical person that, that might be gifted with more athletic prowess. But I, uh, I definitely look at kind of my upbringing as the, the core reason that I've had success anywhere in life. Yeah. And, and that is really a profound thing that you're talking about, just the discipline and determination and your upbringing and shaping you to be the person that you are. And, you know, I, I know enough about the SEAL teams and making it through buds and those kinds of things. I myself was in the Navy. I was in the real Navy though. I was in the, I was in the shipboard Navy, not the Navy that hangs out at the beach with short shorts is I just wanted you to know that I, Nick. I, I feel like you sacrificed more than I did because you spent time aboard ship. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I would probably disagree with that. I, I only did four years. You did many more and you know, each one, each one, uh, you know, carries their own burden, right? No matter what, what Absolutely. branch of service that we're in. So yeah, yeah. I'm thankful no. for you and, and the work you've done. But what I do know enough about, uh, about people making it through buds is athleticism is not enough. No. All no, those intangibles all. that you just said are uh, I, absolutely not only something that would get you through buds, determination, hard work, and those kind, that kind of uh, those ethics that you learned at home, but also in everyday life. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think being a team player, uh, being part of something bigger than yourselves is, is probably the quality 
that probably points to the most success in, in buds. And I mean, in, 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 I think in life in general, uh, your ability to work well with other people, understand where your strengths are and your weaknesses are, and be able to kind of fill that role effectively is, is what, you know, allows you to stand out, perform and accomplish some really great things. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things did, uh, you mentioned your dad and, and your upbringing, what types of things, uh, now looking back, if you can, what kind of things happened earlier in your life, you would say, wow, that was a really kind of fundamental thing that I learned. And the reason why I ask is this, is because there's a lot of dads who, who listen to this and they themselves maybe didn't grow up with a whole lot of discipline, or maybe they did. And they're mm-hmm. trying to, trying to be a better dad. And maybe they feel a little ill-equipped or feel like it's a, it's a giant mountain for them to climb. So what types of things happen in your home that would be maybe transferable to a guy or dad who'd be listening? Uh, so one thing that I respected about my dad, and I, and I, you know, I respect it so much more now because I am a, a father mm-hmm. uh, to two children, is you know, he, he rarely, if ever, raised his voice. Mm-hmm. And it didn't mean that he didn't discipline me and he didn't teach me very sound lessons because obviously I, I point back to him now and I think he, he taught me everything that made me who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he would always approach discipline um, from like a teaching perspective. And, you know, I think the things that shaped me more than anything is like, I, I felt like I never want to let my dad down mm-hmm. because, you know, I never, like I, I wouldn't get upset or angry, uh, like jaded with my dad. I did something wrong and I was being disciplined because he would approach it as, Hey, you know, I, you're better than that. Like you're, you know, I just, you know, I could see and feel kind of, you know, the, the disappointment, Mm -hmm. but he never would give up on me. You know, he would, he'd be willing to kind of teach me, you know, why that isn't the way you need to behave or you Mm -hmm. should behave. Um, he, he showed me how to be a better person and how to, uh, kind of recover from those, those times that I, I was tripped up in my youth and, and, and never did it in a way that felt demoralizing, demeaning, um, because that's the easy way out, you know, as a parent now, you know, it's easy to lose my cool and yell at my kids mm. because, you know, I'm 39, I'm much bigger than them. And I can, I, I, you know, they're, they will be scared of me because I am a bigger person. Um, but I think that that's a, that's an easy way out and it's much harder to kind of find a way to instill some really, you know, sound lessons, um, you know, during your children's upbringing, mm-hmm. you know, by, by actually being, you know, being, being a dad, like step in and, and, and teach them, you know, mm-hmm. don't just rely on, on kind of yelling at them and punishing them for, for what they did. Yeah, I mean, if you're just going to yell at them, and if you're just going to use brute force or just just imposing the size and the size difference between a kid, I mean, really, that's that's being a coward uh, sure. more than anything. I mean, that's horrible leadership. Uh, you know, and the thing is, if if a guy's going to be like that, all he's going to lead is kids, because sure. no other grown man is going to be able to sit under a leader like that. Speaking of of leadership. Uh, you were actually not only in the other side of the Navy, I was enlisted. I know that you were an officer and then you went to the Naval Academy, which I want to say is is really a treat having you on simply because of that, because up to this point, I've had a, a couple of people from the teams and I've also, I haven't had anyone from uh, the Naval Academy, only the Air Force Academy. So you're bringing it back for us. 
So, uh, <laughs> so tell me, uh, you know, tell us what, what was that like, you know, you go into the Naval Academy, that experience and, and really kind of give the timeline from there to then when you went into uh, BUDS and then SEAL teams. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the Naval Academy is a great place. Uh, it, it allowed me to, to focus intensely on, on the goal of, of uh, getting picked up for a billet in the SEAL training. Um, I, you know, I have some extremely close friends from the Naval Academy. I mean, my, my brother-in-law uh, who married my wife's identical twin was a roommate of mine at the Naval Academy. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So yeah, very close. Um, you know, but you know, that's just one example of the kind of the strength of relationships that I was able to build there. And in a lot of it is just because we were, we were forced to, to interact, uh, to, uh, build relationships because we didn't have distractions. Right. I mean, like the first, I, you know, the first year you're definitely not going out and doing much of anything, you know, besides staying on the yard and, and in our, in our kind of birthing. And then uh, year two, you get a little bit more freedom, but not that much. So I think, you know, it's this, this great situation, which, you know, I think is a rarity in life for kids, you know, to experience is being uh, in a confined environment and, and having to just rely on, you know, each other and the relationships you have and interactions with each other to keep you entertained. And, and, and that really, I think that formed a, a solid foundation uh, for me in, in all these relationships that I've carried with me after the Naval Academy. Uh, so, and, it, and it's, you know, some people look at it from an outsider's perspective and say, wow, like you didn't get to do much of anything. You know, when I was a freshman in college, I was out partying and I got to do all this stuff and I could have a car and mm -hmm. I could, you know, go wherever I wanted on the weekends. But, you know, taking all of those freedoms away from me you know, coming out of senior year in high school where you think you're on top of the world was yeah. probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I appreciate, I appreciated all that stuff so much more. And I was able to develop uh, interpersonal skills that I think I've carried with me, you know, beyond school. Yeah. And I'm sure the, the upbringing and the discipline that you had in your home, it probably, it, you know, obviously, you, you know, your senior year, everybody, you graduate senior year, you're top of the world, you're, everything's going to be awesome. You think, oh man, it's going to be this. And then if you were to go through a heavily disciplined environment, I mean, I, I understand this. I went to boot camp four days after I graduated. So it's kind of like you go from, you know, mountaintop <laughs> to free fall, you know, I mean, it's yeah, just yeah. like, and I was not disciplined growing up. So the only discipline that I had was I wanted to work so I could have a car so I could chase girls. I mean, that was kind of the storyline, like, right. It wasn't mm -hmm. like the most epic of tales. It was horrible and it led me to a bunch of mistakes. But so I understand that, you know, that you do, you go from the, you know, the mountaintop to then free fall down. But it sounds like for you, you have that, that discipline, which then made it a little bit easier once you got into the academy that you're like, okay, I'll just do the next thing. And this is what they're telling me to do. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I had, you know, I had some uh, lofty goals going to the Naval Academy. The reason I went there is because I, I wanted to be part of the SEAL teams. I at least wanted a shot to, to go through selection. And so I always had that in the back of my head. And I went in with, you know, hyper focus on, on that end result. So the discipline definitely helped in, in you know, to help me achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I just, I picked up so many other uh, great things from my time at the Naval Academy. Um, because of 
it, you know, that regression post high school, being able to experience mm. life without all these things that I took for granted, you mm. know, when I was in high school. So it, it's just, it, it's like anything else. It's, it's good. It's good to suffer. It's good to, to be mm. deprived of some of the things that, that we start to take it, uh, you know, take for granted on a daily basis. You know, mm. I think, you know, depravity is probably something that we all could use a little bit of in our lives to make us appreciate what we do have. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the things that that I have said, and I used to have an opportunity to mentor some young teenagers, and I would just give them certain principles, little mantras. And one of the things that I would say to them is men do hard things, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, do, they do hard things. So it's not, you know, being an idiot, and then just putting ourselves in compromising situations without any sort of payoff. But life will present to us many hard things. If, if we just live life, you know, you don't even have to be somebody who's on the edge of anything. We're going to be faced with adversity in that, that hardship. So that's the reason why I mentor these boys. And I'm like, men do hard things. You're not going to walk mm-hmm. away from something that's hard because I know that once they they push through that discipline and that perseverance that they're going to be better for it yeah uh, life is a never ending uh problem set it's oh, man. not like you're never going to get to a point in life where all of your problems go away regardless of what mm-hmm. you think you know you could achieve so much uh, a tremendous amount of success you can make all the money in the world you could think you, you you're the most popular person and 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 with all of that comes a new set of problems so mm-hmm. uh it it's become very clear to me in the last couple of years that, you know, it, it's all about trying to live in the present mm-hmm. and, and focus on focus and have gratitude for what I have right now, mm-hmm. not what I could have or what I'm working towards. Mm-hmm. So that, that, you know, that path for me is, uh, is what it's all about. You know, the, the end goal is great to have because it helps to kind of guide me on that path but I, I'm really trying hard to, to kind of live in the moment more and enjoy what I, I have in front of me right now. That's really valuable. That is, that is so valuable because that bit of contentment. And I think that men and the men that I talk to in my community here, it's like, I want men striving, striving to be better men, to be great men, to better in their business, better in their home, better individually, better physically, you know, better intellectually, spiritually, relationally, in all aspects of mm-hmm. life to, to grow. But yet, I think one of the things that men can do is they can get so fixated on where they want to go that they are not present with where they currently are and they can lack contentment. And what you're saying is, is really powerful because you're saying to be present in the moment, even while you're striving for, for other things in your life. And it's cool to do that, but don't miss the here and now. Right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with goal setting. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what successful people do. They set goals and they want to achieve goals. Right. But getting so fixated on the goal can be destructive. And I, and I know that I've experienced that personally. Um, I, I went through my own trials and tribulations Mm post-military where, you know, I got so fixated, uh, on the goal of reinventing myself, proving Mm -hmm. that I could do something besides being a SEAL officer. And I lost focus on on the goal uh, that is most important to me of being a, a a quality loving husband and father to my new daughter, you know, and it's not like I I completely abandoned my wife and my daughter, but 
they were they played second fiddle to the goal of of being successful and mm-hmm. uh, kind of reestablishing myself as somebody that can be successful on the outside, not just mm-hmm. in the military. Well, and and myself, I deployed a couple times. I I know that you have deployed a lot, and um, you've served you know multiple tours. And I know that you've gone to Iraq and Afghanistan. It's like you've been all over the place, over the Middle East, and fighting those wars. But I mean, just the military generally when you are in an active duty situation, certainly with the Navy SEALs, it's, it's even more so than mine. Uh, I worked on F-18, so I deployed on carriers. That's what I did. And uh, out of the four years, I was at sea for, or sea, at sea or gone for a year and a half of the four. So I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And there's, there is this element, even within the military, it's, it's look at the mission in front of you, focus on the mission in front of you, and then put all those relationships, all the stuff at home, put that behind you. And, and maybe that works, you know, and I would say it worked when I was on the, you know, the flight deck and it's at night active flight ops, you know, we're flying missions over Saudi Arabia and who knows where else we're flying missions at that time. It works in that setting to keep people alive, to keep you alive, keep the mission going forward. But at the end of the day, that time in service ends. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a shift in mindset, I think, uh, in sure. the way that you live to say, okay, okay, now my mission, my, my mission is shifting, but I can't, uh, I need to make sure that my family is on the forefront. Yeah. There's a reason why, you know, when we're in those situations, you know, namely military service where, where people's lives are at stake, you, you have to, you really don't have a choice. You have to prioritize the mission mm-hmm. and, and your role within that unit uh, as, as top priority. And I, and I, I never, I never would tell you that that was a bad choice because that was always top priority for me. Mm-hmm. And I had to recognize that when I finally made the decision to transition out of the military, I had to recognize the fact that that will always be top priority. So long as I stay in the military. Mm-hmm. And now that I have a wife and I have a daughter, I, I had to reconcile whether or not I could live with myself, be happy and content, knowing that those people are going to, you know, be second in my life while I'm working up and deploying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, I think that's, that's a shift that happens. I want to cycle back to this, you know, after it really saddens me, I mean, absolutely just crushes me when uh, I know that either airmen, sailors, Marines, you know, soldiers, they come back from war and their mission was the brotherhood. It was the people they were with. And, you know, it's, they're not thinking about the flag. They're thinking about, you know, protecting their life and the person next to them and the brotherhood Mm -hmm. that's formed, which is a profound thing of which there's not enough, there's not enough hours in this day for us to exhaust the benefits of that. But yet it saddens me when a man loses that group of people and it, everybody, there's, there's an end of obligated service for every person. So that day is coming for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a Navy SEAL, if you're a Marine Recon, if you're an Airedale like I was, if you're a four-star general, there is a day where that will end. And it crushes me to see, uh, to see people fail because they lost the mission and because, because they, the mission that they had at the time was all they were living for. And then their life just unravels on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Well, no, I, I, you, you hit on like such a profound point and, and it's something that I have, it's taken me multiple years 
you know, having gone through my own transition to figure out kind of what is it, what, what, what am I missing that I had before that has led to, you know, me, you know, not being the best version of myself. And and I point to connection now Mm. and loss of connection and brotherhood that you talk about. Mm. And I used to always say it, it was a loss of purpose and a loss of the mission, which I think is true, but it's the loss of connection, like deep connection to people Mm. that you truly love and care about. And, and I walked away from that for a while thinking that I just need to replace the mission and the purpose with a new job and a new role and a new mission Mm. that, you know, might not be going over to Afghanistan to, you know, hunt our nation's enemies. Uh, But maybe it's, it's being the best version of myself in the business world to Mm -hmm. make the most money and, and, you know, make a lot of other people money. And uh, I've come to realize that, you know, reconnecting with people and kind of rebuilding those, those points of connection in my life have, have been more beneficial. And, and I, I truly, you know, appreciate and, you know, and love the fact that I have been able to recognize, you know, the need for connection and the importance of connection in my life. Yeah. And I I think when it comes to, you know, there's all sorts of things in life that are identity shaping or identity giving. And certainly being a Navy SEAL is one of them. And that's a profound thing. You've, you know, if, and I'm just saying this, you know, third party, I'm on the outside looking in at the community, because I'm certainly not one of you. But from what I understand and what I've read is just because the crucible and not just buds, but all the training, I mean, everybody, everybody thinks about buds and think about hell week, and they think that's what it means to be a Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. There is so much more to being a Navy SEAL than that. So much more training and all, all of the things that you have to go through. But I know that all of that, that journey and that process to being a SEAL, it, it refines you. But also, once you're in that community, from what I understand, is once you're in that community, it's like a shared brotherhood. And it, it, it is an identity thing because we're saying we've all made it through this thing together. And now I'm a Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. My, my question is this from yourself and then other people who've gotten out of this, uh, who've gotten out of the SEALs or of the service that you've been around, um, how, do you, how do you break free from that identity-forming element of being a Navy SEAL into a civilian? I realize that some aspect, you know, you're a Navy SEAL, you're always a Navy SEAL, but it, to, to being a civilian, because it seems like, and I don't think this is true, but it seems like some people would think that that uh, that the mission of a Navy SEAL was greater than any mission that could somebody than someone could have as a civilian. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I could tell you that, you know, being being a Navy SEAL, holding that title, having that designation, mm-hmm. didn't didn't make me who I am. Mm-hmm. I it, it was everything, all the qualities and skills that I had. Uh, I had accumulated up to that point in my life that made me who I am. And even in service as a SEAL, you know, I had to prove myself and grow as an individual every single day to mm-hmm. uphold the reputation that our community has. I still have to do that. I mean, I carry, I carry that obligation mm-hmm. to the SEAL community. You know, if I'm out if I'm out running my mouth and, and uh, presenting an image that isn't congruent with the, the, the ethos and the, the reputation that, you know, 
so many people from our community have upheld and mm -hmm. galvanized. I, I'm doing the entire community disservice and I don't deserve to, to hold that title. So it, it's all about kind of the, it's about the person, it's about the attributes, mm -hmm. uh, the character, you know, those foundational virtues that you bring to the table that make you who you are. And that's the stuff that I, I and everybody else can take with you after service mm -hmm. and, and put to work in some other job uh, or pursuit. And, and that's what it's all about. It's not taking, I'm a Navy SEAL and now I'm going to be a Navy SEAL business person. It's, mm. you know, you know, I'm, I am the person that embodied all of these characteristics and worked really hard to achieve this thing that was very hard to achieve in the military. And I'm going to use that same tenacity and that same skill set and same commitment to achieve something comparable on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I, on top of that, and, and this is something, you know, I, I think of often, and it's a stoic philosophy, philosophy is uh, a memento mori, uh, which is, you know, always keeping, you know, our mortality or death top of mind. And I, I think about that often, not to be morose, mm -hmm. but to make sure that my identity, the thing that I am focused on, you know, being the best version of uh, is something that I am going to be proud of. And it's, mm -hmm. it's something that's going to matter to me on the day that, you know, I leave this world. And, and for me personally, that's, you know, being a dad to my kids. And, and being a high quality husband and a trusted and respected friend. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and that has shaped me, you know, in everything that I do that, that is top of mind. And that mm -hmm. drives me, that drives me to be the best version of myself, uh, because I don't want to let myself down in those categories. I wish all guys would get that message. You know, some guys are just not as, uh, just don't have that inner motivation that you do. And I have a, a, a fair amount I'm not trying to compare myself to you, but I have a fair amount of inner motivation as well. Uh, really kind of a self-starter, self-mastery, like trying to master the things that I can and, and those kinds of things. So I'm like, I'm trying to improve myself as just the same thing you're talking about. But I really wish guys would really grasp the fact that we is to really live like we're dying. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and again, it's not to be morose. It's not to be morbid. It's not to, well, okay, now we're getting all sappy. But for me, it's... Honestly, I view it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity when I go home today uh, from the office and I go home and, and, and I have the opportunity. Okay, if I'm living like I'm dying, like I have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow, but I want to invest in my wife. I want to, I want to share with my wife. I want to grow with my wife. I want to pour into my kids. My daughter's 17. You know, I think we have little, and my son's 24, but I think we have little thresholds in life that remind us of this too, mm -hmm. is you know, when there's a transition that happens in the home, like for instance, like my daughter's a senior, so she's going to graduate this year. Well, that's a transition. So that is like, not necessarily the live like you're dying, but it's like, okay, it, it reminds you that time matters because yeah. we're less than a year and she's going to be at a college somewhere. And yeah. my time with her is going to shift dramatically. Mm, I do. I, I think it's, it's so important to keep that perspective in mind. I mean, I, I can think back on so many years that, you know, I did not live, I did not live to the fullest potential during those years, as far as my engagement with my daughter, uh, the engagement with my wife, and I never will get those years back. And I'm not dwelling on that, 
but it serves as a stark reminder that you know time is fleeting. Mm. We only have a little bit of that time before we we move on, and and we will go through kind of these little micro transitions mm. where you know the relationship you know with my daughter won't be the same when she goes into middle school or high school mm. or college um, or gets married and has her own family. And, uh, you know, I just, and, and, and those, those events are all beautiful and it's a transition yeah. that we all go through every person on the face of this earth will go through, but, you know, relishing the moment and being able to really, you know, be honest with yourself and say, I, I feel good about the time that I spent mm. with that person during that period in my life. And I, I'm not going to be regretful because regret is, it's the worst thing that mm. I've experienced. And, mm. and I don't wish regret on anybody. You know, regret is a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, the goal, the goal is to, <laughs> to not be regretful and, and try to live every day. And I'm not perfect by any means. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not either. I, <laughs> I don't want to paint that picture either. You know, I, I, I'm not either. I mean, regret is a vampire, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it just drains, like it drains emotionally, spiritually, physically, like feel like you're wasting away when, when we live a life of regret. And, you know, so that's what I'm trying to help men to become new in, in whatever aspect of life that they need to improve, whether it's financially, relationally, intellectually, spiritually, or, or physically, just to, to not just reinvent themselves, but to continue to grow which is why, you know, it's so great to hear from people like you, Nick, because you give a, a, a fantastic perspective of somebody who's accomplished a lot of things. And yet you see just how authentic you are in your message and the same things that you would struggle with are the same things that I would struggle with. Yeah, we're, we're, we're both human beings. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like, it, it doesn't matter. We all, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the thing that is so powerful about living each day you know, living each day, like you're dying. And it doesn't mean yeah. like you're, you're going out and you have to be like, Oh man, I got to do everything today. And I got to right. go take this trip and do all this stuff. No, it's just like, it's, it's being cognizant of the fact that, you know, we have an opportunity to, to kind of cherish the moment right mm -hmm. now. So we don't regret not living in that moment when, when, you know, it's our time to go. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, it's been like a, the centerpiece in my life for the last, you know, year and a half is just really focusing in on that. Um, and it's been good. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very thankful for that perspective. I'm thankful to have that mindset. Uh, but it's, it's a mindset that everybody could benefit from. I don't care who you are, how well known you are, what you've accomplished in life. You know, we are all going to the same place eventually. Mm -hmm. And if you're not taking advantage and being honest with yourself about, you know, those moments that we have in front of us right now, um, you know, you're, you're no different than, than any other person. You, you, you know, you'll, you'll feel regret the same way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's not something that, that is, uh, that I want to welcome into my life. Absolutely not. I want to, I want to cycle back to leadership and I want to, I want to ask you a couple of questions if I could just, this pop in my mind of, going from the Naval Academy and then you go into BUDS and I don't know what the experience is like for somebody who's enlisted or an officer. So if you could first unpack what, what is the difference, if there is a difference, and then also how, uh, how is, is leadership formed in the SEAL teams? 
Well, I think the interesting or unique aspect of, of our particular training pipeline is that, you know, whether you're an officer or you're enlisted, you go through the exact same process. Mm. You know, you know, I, we, we don't have like a special officer program or an enlisted program. It's like, you go to buds, you go to buds and you're a buds trainee. Mm. Um, so I think that's awesome because it's a shared struggle. Mm. We, we have a shared experience uh, within our community. And, uh, and I think that that, produces, um, you know, some shared respect, right? We, mm. we know, we know what we've been through because all mm. of us have, sh- have shared in that experience. So, so I think that really helps to kind of galvanize the bonds and, mm. and create such a tight knit community within the SEAL teams. Um, you know, from a, you know, a leadership perspective, um, you know, I, I you are, you're in a specific role as an officer, um, you know, even in buds, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, there are expectations that you are going to step up and lead. And it's not, you know, the misnomer is that, okay, you're an officer and you have to be a leader. I know you're going through the same training, but you need to step up and you need to start, you know, yelling orders out and you need to be the man in front of everybody all the time. And in that, in my experience, that wasn't the way that, you know, you earn people's respect. Uh, in, in our community, it comes by doing, not not just being that figurehead that's that's kind of talking the talk. I mean, you had to perform. You know, people needed to look up to you as you know, not just a leader, but uh, a leader in the sense that, like, hey, you you outrank me, and you're kind of helping to structure things. You had to be a leader. You know, physically, you had to be a, le- a leader mentally, emotionally. Um, you know, that's, you had to set the example and, uh, uh, and that's, that didn't end in training. That is something that has carried forward, you know, through my time in active duty as a SEAL officer. You know, I, I, I wasn't in a position to falter, you know, I, I was expected to lead by example. And the second that a leader in our community, uh, in any community for that matter, starts to assume that they do not need to lead by example because of their status in the organization. I think that's, that's the beginning of the end. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's definitely, we will, we eat our own in the community. If, mm-hmm. if somebody is showing that they are quickly pulled aside and, uh, and they're talked to mm-hmm. uh, by, it doesn't matter who, who it is. I mean, I mean, that's, that's the expectation. And if you don't live up to that expectation, you, you will be quickly shown the door. Yeah, and I appreciate that too. I, I, one of the things that I really liked about uh, just kind of hearing one of the podcasts that you were on with Andy Stump, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, on Cleared Hot, one of the things that that you guys talked about, which I thought was really valuable, is even going in, you know, there's an expectation that you're going to be a leader, but yet you would talk with Andy, and it was recognized. You're like yeah, I'm a leader because, you know, my rank, the insignia on my uniform says that I am, but recognizing, I don't know Jack. So it's like leaning on those who are even under you as far as in rank structure, but yet leaning on their wisdom. Could you talk about that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I I think it's applicable to to everyday life, right? I mean, none of us, if you think you know everything and you're the best at everything, then you lack a lot of perspective and you're yeah. not being honest with yourself. That's right. And, uh, and it, it is very uh, evident, readily apparent in the SEAL community that 
as a young officer, you do not know everything. Uh, you don't have the experience. Uh, you don't have the skill set. You need to rely on on the people in your organization that have the experience and have the mm-hmm. skills that are going to make the team as a whole successful. Mm-hmm. So it's it it was you know there was no other way, right? I I was forced into that environment, and you know because we're we're a high performance team, and mm-hmm. we're expected to perform at the highest levels. Uh, and it and it didn't matter, you know, who who was in what role. You just need to make sure that you have people in each of those roles performing as optimally as they can in that specific role, be able to better the entire unit. And and you can take that to any organization in any environment in this world, apply it. And and I can't imagine that you're going to see anything but an improvement in that organization's performance. So let's break that down a little bit and, and to get into the nitty gritty of the leadership aspect of this. I think it's interesting and I think there's some there's some gold here. I, I think when it comes to military, there's there's a, again a misnomer of that leadership is always top down. It doesn't matter, you know, if I outrank you, then then you're just gonna spit out orders and the person's supposed to do it. And we've really debunked that already. But one of the things that you just touched on, Nick, was the fact that going in and looking at your team and then recognizing their strengths. And then putting them in a situation to succeed based off their strengths. How did you evaluate that? How did you evaluate people's strengths? I mean, I know there's more to being a SEAL than walking around with an M4 and shooting, you know, or somebody's got the big gun and somebody's got an I mean, I know that. Um, but, but what would that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to rely on, on other people in your organization that you trust that also have the same, uh, strengths as the, the, the individual that you're trying to evaluate, mm. right? Me as a, me as a SEAL officer, uh, in a, in a platoon, um, you know, we'll talk hypothetical here, mm-hmm. you know, who am I to say that this, you know, this communicator, this breacher is better than another breacher, or this sniper is better than another sniper. You know, a lot of that, uh, came from feedback within their peer group. Okay. You know, I, I, you know, I, every officer is paired up with, with a, uh, a senior enlisted, you know, so as a platoon commander, I had a platoon chief and I had a leading petty officer, uh, that were part of our leadership unit. And, you know, thankfully, you know, I had, you know, two enlisted guys that were paired up with me that were highly respected, highly experienced, had a lot of those granular skill sets that, you know, we were expected to evaluate. So, I was able to kind of tap into their expertise and their experience to be able to evaluate the guys and make sure that we're putting the right guys in the right roles and giving more responsibility to the right people uh, to help grow them and make our unit more successful. So you, you have to you have to kind of check your ego. And I think the 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 best skill and quality that a leader can bring to the table is their ability to see kind of the, uh, the prowess of those that are around them in their organization and empower those people, lean on them and help you make the better decisions for, for the whole. And, and, and that takes humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, humility, I've, I've spoke about it probably repeatedly as I've, I've been on different platforms, but you know, it all starts with humility. I mean, if yeah. you are able to embrace humility, 
and know where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and be honest and truthful with yourself, you know, you, you set, you set, you're setting yourself up for success in whatever organization you're in. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. You know, I think humility is, is really the virtue of, that every other virtue hangs. And uh, there's a famous author from many, many years ago by the name of Andrew Murray, who said that. And I think it's true in every facet of life. You know, I think that uh, w- when a leader lacks humility, he's going to be looking to, you know, to how can he make himself look better? He's going to shut off communication that he needs with subordinates. People are going to keep him alive and, and mm-hmm. that he will be, to, be able to better keep alive and, and accomplish the mission and the task at hand. So I, I really, I mean, I totally buy into what you're saying. I, I found it to be true in my own life. The times where I was stuck in ego, I was holding myself back. And, you know, at the same time, you're, it can be so convincing internally, like that you're doing the right thing and because you make yourself look good, but you make yourself look like a jerk, like yeah. super easy, right? <laughs> we are, we're probably the most persuasive person in our lives, right? You know, <laughs> our, our, our ego, we can convince <laughs> ourselves of anything, right? Yeah. And we're the best thing ever. We're the worst person ever. You know, we are absolutely the most persuasive person. I mean, it's it's even when you're a little boy, like me with being a little boy and having a dirt bike. It's like it's ego. I can I can make that jump. I can make that jump. I can make that jump. Two seconds later, you get on the ramp on the dirt, whatever. It's like you don't make the jump because you could not make the jump because you're not skilled <laughs> enough to take the jump. And then you end up breaking your arm. And it was ego that right. said the whole thing. And right. Well, and, and hey, there's there's good that comes from that too, right? Like, like ego definitely builds confidence and it's great to be a confident person, yep. but it's always good to have the perspective to, you know, pull yourself back right. and, and glean that broader perspective and be open and, and ready to take feedback and, and take suggestions from people that, that may have more experience than you. Yes. How did, how did that really play out in the battlefield? Again, I, I know just because the, the study that I've done, I know that you served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. If you could unpack just a little bit or a lot, whatever you want, into what you did in both of those different campaigns, uh, maybe the audience doesn't know this. Not all Navy SEALs do the exact same thing all the time. There's different mm-hmm. facets of different teams, different specialties. It's, it's, it's more complex than what we even have time for probably today. But I know that what you did in, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq was was a little different. So I, I thought maybe you would be able to share some of that. Sure. Yeah. And I'll start by saying that like, by no means am I like the end all be all uh, kind of most experienced SEAL ever mm. um, or experienced combat veteran uh, for that matter. Um, you know, I will always, always hammer the point home that, you know, I had the, the honor and the privilege of serving with both SEALs, uh, Marine Corps, infantry, army infantry, uh, you know, army and Navy uh, pilots, uh, helicopter pilots that were extremely brave, mm. uh, extremely capable, and saw more combat than than I had uh, the opportunity to see. So mm. uh, I, that's there, that's my lead in. Um, but yeah, I had a a, a slightly different experience. Uh, you know, in some regard, as a SEAL in uh in 2006 and 2010 on on my you know deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan I I did a lot of daylight combat or participated in a lot of daylight combat um we were doing in 2006 doing a lot of uh counterinsurgency based on general petraeus's doctrine 
to get you know outside of the armor. Um, we were partnered up with a lot of uh, conventional forces uh, to execute kind of their mission or, or be in support of their mission in their battle space, mm-hmm. which, which led, you know, I think we crafted our cap or we're able to uh, blend our capabilities effectively into that environment, not just go blindly into daylight, you know, presence patrols to contact. We were saying, Hey, how can we strategically take our, uh, I guess, increased capability as a special operations unit and augment this kind of conventional effort in a way that's going to, you know, kind of elevate the entire group. Hmm. So we did uh, a lot of sniper overwatch operations in support of conventional uh, operation, uh, conventional movement and conventional operations in, in various battle space. And, uh, and then Afghanistan, we did uh, a lot of, a lot of going out and visiting a lot of different villages to increase um, kind of our interaction with the local population you know, trying to win them over, trying to turn them so they weren't in support of the Taliban while when I was over there. And uh, a lot of that involved, you know, sitting down and, and talking to locals with interpreters, uh, drinking tea, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just spending time trying to understand their perspective. Uh, you know, I'd say a majority of the time was spent doing that. You know, majority of the time was not spent in you know, gunfights with the enemy. I mean, we, we did a lot of that. And, and, and typically we would have some of that on an operation, but the lion's share of the operation was non-kinetic. Um, so, and, and a lot of it was executed during the day. Again, you know, we had uh, directives from Karzai when I was in Afghanistan to, to kind of limit nighttime operations. Um, you know, Why was that? I mean, we we definitely have the combative advantage at night. Why would you? Obviously, you can't go village to village, you know, at night and do a where, knock on the door and and just right. on them, right? I mean, you're we're yeah. not going to do that. And maybe that's maybe that's maybe I just answered my own question, but it just seems like we give up a lot whenever sure. we do these things, and we put ourselves in very, in your your case, being put in a very vulnerable situation because yep. I know it's different from what I've you know, from what I, I understand about it, it was different than say 2006 at Ramadi and that kind of thing. Like the, it was, it was a different environment, but still very compromising. For sure. Yeah. No, very compromising. I mean, I, I I'm not going to get into the politics of it all, but uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of backdoor reasons why we are doing that. And uh, you know, the, the, the party line at the time, at least within the Afghan government was that, you know, they didn't want uh, a male, uh, Afghan male, defending his home because somebody's coming into their house to, you know, and, and they're, they're treating it as like kind of like a, a home invasion. Um, so that was, it was to try to mitigate uh, mm-hmm. civilian casualties and collateral damage. And that was a huge focus. I mean, it always should be a focus, right? We want to mitigate our, uh, our impact on the local population and on innocence. Um, so that's the reason they were doing it. Granted, we gave away a massive tac- tactical advantage on a lot of operations because we weren't allowed to go into a village until, you know, the, the sun had kind of broken the horizon and we're, you know, we're in daylight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were able to use our, you know, our tactics, our, uh, our capabilities to, to take as much of that advantage uh, back by just the way that we postured, the way that we execute our operations and, mm-hmm. and kind of set those things up. But yeah, I mean, it definitely was a, 
it was a difficult problem. And I think one that, you know, we were able to surmount and, and kind of uh, execute effectively uh, regardless of the situation. And, you know, and granted, we were still conducting nighttime operations. I mean, and, and that goes back to kind of your statement that, hey, not every, not every SEAL element is doing the same job. And we mm-hmm. have other units that, you know, were focused intensely on nighttime operations and, and doing kind of those targeted uh, raids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're very good at that. And, uh, and, and we, able, we were able to continue those type of operations uh, simultaneously. But, you know, we, at, in, on my deployment, you know, I had my marching orders. We had our, uh, our mission and we knew who we were supporting and all, you know, our number one goal was to have an impact on the battle space in a positive way mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of help, help strengthen, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate goal and support, um, you know, for, for those that, that we worked for at the time. So just stay in your role, you know, and perform that role well. Yeah. You know, one of the things, even whenever I was in the Navy, one of the things that I'm not proud of this is, you know, when different things would happen, you know, whether it was a political change or somebody sending an edict from somewhere in Washington, D.C., where things would be done differently or we couldn't do this or we couldn't do that or they'd make changes. It it seemed like uh, at my level anyway, we didn't know why the changes were there and we were just expected to just adapt to them and just take it. But it was almost like in a mindless kind of just do what you're told, you know, just not really, in my opinion, not the healthiest way of handling it as far as leadership down to where I was at the Mm -hmm. time. So I consequently didn't respond very well either. And I didn't like the leadership over me because they didn't give any input, you know, or tell you what's going on. They just kind of treated as kind of childish. Um, And I just wondered how much of a challenge was that for you as a leader to, to have those tactics exposed going out during the day, knowing, I mean, and, and I'm not trying to bait you into political thing. I, I would rather not go there, but we've both been in the service. We know that politics it takes, you know, it, there, there's absolutely a political effect to what happens in the military point blank. But how did you keep uh, the guys that you're with? How did you keep them motivated on task, on target, on mission, you know, working during the day, not working at night, or maybe not even seeing the, the, you know, the full on, other elements of war that maybe would happen at night. How, how did well, you keep I mean, them motivated? I mean, I can tell you that I, you know, we were focused on, you know, protecting, you know, those brothers that were, were over there serving with us. Mm-hmm. And specifically our unit, uh, you know, we were in an area that uh, had been, you know, had suffered some pretty massive casualties uh, mm-hmm. as it relates to IEDs. Mm-hmm. along a major thoroughfare um, in Afghanistan. And, you know, we knew a bunch of the guys that were killed in some of these IED strikes. Wow. So for us, it was, it, it all came down to kind of making it personal. Um, you know, knowing that we have the ability, regardless of the constraints that are imposed upon us to impact the battle space in a way that can take some of the IED making materials and IED uh, kind of facilitators, um, you know, off the street. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was the motivation. That's the way we stayed motivated. Uh, that's what I preached to our guys. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the operation that we were going on, one of the, the, the core vetting criteria was how is this going to impact, you know, our ability 
to keep those guys safe that are doing, you know, kind of thankless jobs driving, you know, supplies in convoys up and down highway one, mm-hmm. how are we going to have an impact on the battle space, take the fight to the enemy on their behalf in order to keep them safer and, uh, you know, and hopefully bring more of those guys back home to their families alive mm-hmm. and making it personal and, and kind of taking the politics and the constraints out of it and cast, I mean, that, that was a, that was a known quantity. I wasn't yeah, going to change right. any of that. I'm not going to go up and I'm not going to preach and, and change my commander's mind uh, or, or politicians' minds. But mm-hmm. I knew that I could enact uh, change and impact the environment that we were in, uh, mm-hmm. in a positive way that was going to yield, uh, you know, people coming home safe to their mm-hmm. families. And, and that resonated with our guys. I mean, it resonates with me even to this day. I mean, I get, you know, goosebumps thinking about mm-hmm. it because that's what it's all about. It's all about, you know, protecting, you know, our brothers uh, in arms and, and, and doing what we need to do uh, to mm-hmm. be good uh, shooting buddies to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I guess just that constant reminder that, Hey, that we're on a common mission, mm-hmm. you know, together and, and that kind of thing, which is really helpful. And especially I, I can imagine those environments have, have never been in Afghanistan and in a wartime uh, theater. I can't even imagine how that, you know, the impact that it would have, but this that constant reminder that, you know, the common mission, common meaning that the brothers next to you were all on a mission together, no matter if you're driving a, a truck for a convoy or if you're, you know, if you're breaching. So yep. I, I think that's a really helpful thing too. Yeah. So, all right. So you, after you got out of the Navy, I know that you went through uh, a, a tough spell. We talked about this a couple months ago. Talk to us, cycling back really to what we talked about earlier, but um, what was that transition like at, at the granular level as much as you can uh, share and, and you would be willing to? Yeah, I mean, at the time, there weren't a lot of programs kind of guiding the transition process. So a lot of it was on me. I had to go out and just network and try to figure out what I'm going to do next and you know, take the initiative to go back to school. Uh, so it was, I guess it was difficult, but you know what, I, I enjoyed the process of getting out and, and meeting new people and understanding kind of what they've done with their lives and, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not that could be a, a prospective future for me. Um, you know, I, I'll say it again, like I, I focused intently on trying to reinvent myself and kind of break uh, from my old identity. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I thought it was, it's healthy, but I, along with the identity, I broke connection, um, thinking that I needed to break connection in order to, mm. to kind of break identity and absolutely not the case. It's, that's not truth. Mm. Uh, I've come to find out how important the connection, you know, with, with, you know, my friends from, from the teams has been in my life. I mean, it's, it's really what I've leaned on now in the last few years uh, that's made me such, I guess, a much healthier version of myself. So, you know, those initial years were, were I would frame them as, as lonely, dark, lonely times, you know, not fulfilling, uh, you know, focused intently on, on work output, uh, but not a lot of connection, you know, n- not a lot of other stuff mattered in my life. So was that because there was no, like, a, a system in place, meaning for, SEALs or service members who are getting out of the service and, you know, come back from war and then getting out? Is it because there were literally no programs or is it 
just simply because you chose that route because you thought it was best. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of it is like, hey, I chose that route. And maybe I would have been too bullheaded to listen to anybody at the time. <laughs> I was just like, you know, I talk to friends nowadays and like they go through the same thing. Like I, you mm-hmm. know, I had a conversation with a friend the other day and I, I hammered the point home from my experience. I'm just like, hey, just don't forget w- about what the things that make you happiest, the things yeah. that you really care about, that drive kind of purpose in your life. Be and Don't lose sight of that as you're kind of pursuing success and being hyper uh, goal oriented and, and aggressive in this transition process. So uh, it, it was, it fell on my shoulders. I'm going to hold myself accountable for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were some programs, uh, those programs have, have changed for the better uh, over the Good. last, you know, call it eight years. There, there's, there's a, a tremendous number of kind of great transition programs. I know uh, a friend of mine runs a program out of USC for SEAL families transitioning mm-hmm. called With Your Shield. Uh, which is a fantastic program. And, you know, if I had a, I mean, I think it's an awesome concept, right? You, you take an entire family because the family's transitioning. It's not just the service member. That's right. And you give all of that family, the whole family, an opportunity to kind of talk to people, talk to spouses, talk to, you know, other civilian employers on the outside, mm-hmm. talk to other SEALs that have been through the transition with their spouse and their kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the, uh, you know, as those pro- uh, programs have been put in place, we have this greater population, this larger population of transition veterans that, you know, the current generation that's serving that will transition can tap into and, and you know, glean some experience from and, and be able to talk to somebody that's been through what they are about to go through. And I think that's powerful. You know, I think it's only going to get better as long as people are, are willing to check their ego and, and Mm -hmm. not be ashamed to reach out to to other vets to kind of learn from their experience. I'm really glad that, that there is an improvement in that. That's a a burden. I mean, I can't, I can't resolve any of that. And, and it's, but I'm glad that there's an improvement and there are different programs to help SEALs and other people who have gone through those kinds of environments and now getting into civilian life because there is a, a direct connection between the identity that is formed within those environments and then the, that shapes purpose or mission. And then if you, you lose that identity piece and then you lose the mission, there's a direct connection to depression and, and suicide, oh, sure. which is an epidemic in our community. So I, uh, I'm really, you know, I'm grateful that there's improvements. I think one of the things that is improving also is people like you just talking about it because they look at you, you know, as a Navy SEAL and the lie I think that most guys believe is, you know, the best way to handle emotions is ignore them or bury them (laughs) or drown them in, in booze or, you know, do whatever you can to try and avoid them, you know. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to people like you are telling your story because it helps guys who are maybe going to the next series of Navy SEAL or somebody who's listening to this podcast right now, who's, who's training to try and get a slot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you help to maybe curb that. So now the next uh, range of veterans will, will realize, yeah, I can't ask for help. It doesn't make me less of a man. It just makes me more human. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate it's, it it seems like the right decision is it's easier to ignore emotions or or kind of cast them aside or lock them away, but they always will come back. They don't mm-hmm. they don't disappear. And uh, 
yeah, being a, there's nothing wrong with being open and vulnerable, uh, especially, you know, when you've decided to kind of make that transition or you've come off of a deployment and you don't need to be front side focused on the mission and you don't need to be a stoic and, uh, and kind of keeping those emotions in check because, you know, people's lives are on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a, there's a time and a place to turn that mindset off, mm-hmm. decompress, you know, offload some of that emotion, some of that trauma, and then you'll be a better person. You'll be more effective. I mean, and that goes for even the active duty component, you know, you, there's nothing wrong with decompressing and offloading some of that stuff while you're on active mm-hmm. duty between deployments and training cycles. I think that's one of the, the misnomers, right? Is that you have to wait until you're, you're done wearing the uniform to, to kind of embrace vulnerability and, and kind of open up to kind of talking about some of the stuff that you got locked away. Um, I think there's a fear element to, you know, with guys who are, who are in, in, you know, whatever branch of service who have gone to combat. I think that there's a fear element to think, well, if I give a guy permission to actually to talk about how I felt uh, you know, going through this, this trauma, whether it's, you know, just battle itself is traumatic and all of the, the sleep deprivation and the sleep cycles, everything's all messed up for you guys. But I, I think there's, there's a fear element that says, if I let this guy tell me how he feels, or I let this guy offload what just happened, then he's going to lose his, his edge and he's going to be of no value to the team anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not the case. I mean, obviously, Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a right time and a right place. I mean, obviously, you know, dealing with that stuff, unpacking it while you're on the battlefield, uh, probably not optimal and it's not going to help you perform better. <laughs> I would uh, say so. There, there's a reason why we compartmentalize and we do it very well, uh, kind mm-hmm. of in, in kind of these, you know, high performing teams, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's no, I mean, being able to, to kind of open up in that regard, it, it optimizes you. It makes you a better person. It gives you more bandwidth. Uh, to work with I mean, it allows you to be, you know, more in touch and in control of your emotions. I think your ability to control emotion and uh, and manage emotions appropriately is is a a massive uh, advantage for you as a as an individual performer. So yeah, I mean, it's a, you feel lighter. You you're taking you're taking a couple of rocks out of the ruck uh, when you do that, and you're going to be more agile, uh, more capable. If, if you start to embrace that early and it's, you know, it's not as painful, right? You know, you might not, you may not go into that dark place. You may not uh, kind of uh, turn to, you know, alcohol or, or drugs, uh, you know, or, or go to a place where, you know, suicidal ideations uh, become a reality. If you've taken the time to do the maintenance, I mean, the same way that, that, you know, no one, no one runs a marathon you know, without training, right? They're putting time and energy into both the physical and mental preparation to conduct that event. We should treat our, our mental health uh, and our mental strength the same way as we do our physical prowess and, and you know, make a concerted effort to commit time to that. Um, you know, it's, it's important. And I, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm a, a glaring example of, uh, of not doing that and having to catch up with me and now that I've realized how important it is, I, I, I spend a, a tremendous amount of time, you know, focused on kind of my, my emotional, uh, my emotional health, my mental health and, and my, my, uh, you know, cognitive function, my mental capabilities. 
I want to touch on that. I don't want to touch on meditation. I know that's something that uh, that you practice regularly, but I want to cycle back to to this question, and, and maybe it's a dumb question, but it's all right. You can laugh it off. I don't care. I, I'm not going to feel judged. Do whatever you want to say or do. I don't care. But uh, no judgment. Yeah, good. I think, you know, just the, the, the question that was rolled around in my mind as far as talking about uh, compartmentalization, right, of these things, of just being able to compartmentalize what happens in that moment. How do you think Bud's prepared you for that? I mean, Bud's is, uh, Bud's, Bud's uses physical, uh, physical discomfort in order to help you prepare for uh I guess the ability to effectively compartmentalize. And I think the guys that will ultimately make it through probably were, were doing this most of their lives. And, and and it probably is an attribute that, uh, you know, it's a very powerful attribute as far as kind of like predictability of success, if you could figure out a way to kind of measure it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, your, your ability to compartmentalize discomfort, I think allows you it's a it's a training methodology to allow you to compartmentalize stress in general. So mm. Buds is using uh, physical stress in order to kind of train your body uh, to compartmentalize effectively and be able to perform and carry on. Mm. Uh, and it and it's because it's hard to kind of put the the mental stress. I mean, you do experience it, but it's coming from a place of of physical discomfort. But the mental stress of of combat stress kind of uh, going in and knowing that, you know, your lives are on the line, you know, you need to perform or something terrible can happen. You know, you do start to go through that as you start to train up, but it starts with kind of being able to compartmentalize the physical stress, you know, instilled from exposure to cold water, physical activity. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think you, you start there because um, yeah, I mean, it's much easier to replicate stress in that capacity than it is the, the mental stress that you're going to feel when you're carrying the weight of leadership on your shoulders. Um, it kind of makes sense too, with even what with the types of things that you're doing now with rock climbing and bouldering uh, it's obviously it's a different discipline, but yet mentally it's a very similar discipline because you have to compartmentalize to do so. I'm not a, a climber, uh, certainly not at the level that you are. Um, I'm not even, I wouldn't even call myself a recreational climber, but I, I have, but I'm not even remotely in that category. But I know how difficult it is, and I know that there has to be a part of of that that is just compartmentalizing pain, whether it's in your fingers, your I mean, everything probably hurts on certain climbs, in a very similar dynamic when uh, you know when you're running an ultra or a marathon even is is mm-hmm. compartmentalizing pain because I am a runner, I haven't run a marathon, I've ran a half marathon, a couple of those, um, and there's pain. You, once you run long distances, there—I mean, there's going to be pain and discomfort. So it takes some sort of uh, compartmentalization. So it really makes sense, really, how that shaped you and the things that you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, and you focus on—you know—one step at a time. You know, you, you try to stay kind of in the moment. You know, and, and you realize that you can—you you, know—you could gut it out for another thirty seconds. You can, and you, if you do that repeatedly, I mean, that's the way people make it through anything that's arduous, you know, whether it be buds or, you know, running, running a hundred miler, you know, you you don't, you don't try to tackle that mentally, you know, as a whole, you, you tackle it kind of one step at a time, one mile at a time. Um, That's the only way you get through that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, it it becomes too difficult 
too overwhelming. Um, and it's easy to get down in yourself and start to second guess your capability or your ability to kind of continue on to the end. If you, tr if you try to bite off more than you can chew. Yeah. Well, and, and that resonates with me, even, you know, in a, in a very small way. And, and I mean, I think it's insane people running a hundred miles, unless of course you're being chased by something like a hundred miles. Come on, man. That's a long <laughs> way. But uh, you know, year and a half ago or so I broke my foot and before that I was running, it was in pretty good shape and uh, you know, not in tip top shape. I'm 46. So I'll be 46 here in a couple of weeks. And so, you know what I'm trying to do, but when I broke my foot, it really set me back and it really set me back. It was, it was crazy. Once I got back to the point, you know, I got the, the boot off and all that where I could actually start putting weight on it. And then eventually got to running. I, I was right back into like day one of running to where mentally thinking about, Oh my, I'm going to, am I going to be able to run this mile? Am I going to be able to, mm -hmm. my foot, you know, and then I'm afraid of my foot. I'm afraid of my foot position. Is it pronating? Am I going to break it again? Is it, you know, all of these things where I was getting all in my head in, in what you're talking about. The reason why I share that story is what you're talking about is something I think all of us want to do when you, when you're trying to pursue a physical goal, there's always going to be a discomfort. There's always going to be a pinch in your knee. There's always a, you know, my foot hurts. I, I I'm chafing, whatever the case may be. So what you're saying really speaks into not just the, the, the Navy SEAL mindset. It's really anyone who's trying to pursue a physical related goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Hey, you, you just got to put the work in, right? I mean, like I, I, I have been away from running for a long time. You know, I've been focusing on just climbing and, and a lot of other things. And, you know, I recently started running again and, you know, I, Hey, it's okay to, to check your ego and be a beginner again. And yeah. it's, it's okay. I mean, I, Hey, I, I know what I've accomplished running before. I know what kind of shape that I was in before. I am not in the same shape. I don't have the same capability in the moment, mm -hmm. but I needed to start. I started somewhere when I got to that point, I had to start from the beginning. I had to focus on, you know, running a few miles before yeah. I'm going to run 50 miles. That's um, right. you know, I had to focus on just completing certain difficult runs uh, not running them for a PR, you know, it, it's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's been humbling for me to kind of, uh, re-engage with something that I was intimately familiar with and, and really having to kind of, you know, start from scratch again mm -hmm. in a way, you know, granted, I mean, I have, you know, you, you kind of, it's like riding a bike, right? You get back on the bike, you, you remember it, but, um, there is that mental process of understanding that you are not going to be the same person you were before because I haven't put the work in and right. you know what I gotta I gotta pay my dues and I gotta put the work in if I'm gonna be uh at a place that I was before in that pursuit mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that uh that's really helpful I mean I, again I think for any guy who has a, a personal goal I think that's you know you have you're gonna battle the demons and and if you get away from it don't expect to be where you were when you left it you know, yep. physically, it's it, it you, more than likely that climb is not going to be as steep as it was the first time. But yet you have to recognize and again, check the ego to say, ah, yeah, I'm not going to be PR in today. Today's a finishing kind of day. Yeah. Be honest with yourself uh, and, and, and don't try to kid yourself. If you didn't put the money in and you didn't invest uh, the time and energy, you're you're not going to reap the benefits. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, I, it's 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 all about personal being honest with yourself, and uh, and I think another thing too is just being kind to yourself. Mm. You know, not being so hard on yourself that you're just demoralizing because you're not you're not accomplishing things at the level you were accomplishing them before. Mm. You know, you you need to start somewhere, and you need to you know kind of practice some self compassion um, and know that you're at least making progress. You're 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 making a commitment to put some some time and attention into something in order to be better at it. Um, it's a process. It's going to take time, and as long as you stay committed, consistency is is what's going to drive you to that ultimate uh, end goal. Yeah, I agree with that too. And sometimes I think it, it requires a, a, like a plan or a process. One of the things that I'm doing right now is 75 hard, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I. I I have taken on the challenge, uh, just a 75 hard challenge, because I want to, I was kind of, I was going through the motions. I was working out, I was running, not, I mean, I was probably five days a week. I was doing one of the two disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so I was, but I was still kind of floundering. I didn't see results. It was just, and then I kind of drifted my eating and then, you know, just doing things I shouldn't do and, and all of that. So sometimes I think it requires a plan. And for me, 75 hard has been helpful. And now I'm, I don't even know how many days I'm 45, approximately 45 days into it. And so that's been really good for me because then I look at, you know, I look at a, a score sheet, a scorecard, right? I have a Trello, uh, Trello on my phone has a checklist of like, this is what I have yet to accomplish today. Yep. yep. So it's, it's incredible. It's been a great motivator for me having a plan because I know that I check those things off and I uncheck them before I go to bed. I got up this morning. I got up a little bit late, would have been tempted to not get up and run, but I got up and ran this morning. It was dark, put on a headlamp, yeah. and, I, and I was winning. By the time I hit the office, I was winning. Right. And yeah. so, so sometimes, not to give you my accolades and all that, that's not the point, but sometimes you need a plan. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, hey, you, you, it's, it's great to have a checklist, right? And it's great to make, you know, s- small accomplishments start sending you on the right trajectory to be successful all day long. So I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that's an awesome strategy. You know, I'm a, I'm definitely a checklist kind of person. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I even do it, you know, on, on, with, you know, pencil and paper, you know, I got scraps of paper all over my desk (laughs) that have little boxes next to things. And I love checking that stuff off. So it's a, yeah, that's very important to have the structured goals, you know, where you can see those micro goals being accomplished. That's one of the good things about the military. There's, you know, there is a, there is a goal, whether it's, you know, your end of obligated service, sometimes that's the goal. And like, I'm getting to the end and I'm leaving this place. Or sometimes it's just this, the end of this training cycle or the end of this deployment. There's always these little micro things to work toward as well. And, and that's one of the things that I think really shaped me as a man uh, early on, again, because I, I left for boot camp four days after graduation so I knew nothing about being a man at that point. And then when you go there, it's like, then they give you these individual thresholds, whether mm-hmm. physically or, you know, or the different testings and all that. And I think that's one of the rare gifts that the military can bring, whether you're at the operator level that, that you were or uh, at the level that I was, is just to bring that discipline. And then also those little, uh, you know, those little thresholds of accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, so I want to ask you this. Uh, I don't know how much time you have today, but I wanted to ask you this because you really dug deep into your story um, with Andy and it's what happened when you have the near death experience. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I'll tell you why that I, I want to do this. I don't want to get in here just to kind of meddle with that experience or some emotional play. I mean, that's farthest thing. But the reason why is I, from what I heard and what I understand is it has given you a different perspective on life. And one of the, my missions with, with the new kind of man is bringing on people who have stories like that. And to talk about how we've had these, these circumstances, whether it's the birth of a child, it could be the death of a child, it could be a near-death experience, it could be a bunch of different things. I had Jason Redman on the show several mm-hmm. episodes ago, and, and when Jay was talking about that, that was his, you know, his kind of coming out of, uh, of the teams and then recovery for he became a new man and then all the great stuff that he's doing now. Yep. And I know that you have a similar uh, story as far as gone through a traumatic experience and then now you're, you're better for it. So could you unpack that? Would you be willing to? Yeah, no, happy to. I mean, I guess not to relive the, uh, uh, the story or retell the story. I mean, I went through it in detail, uh, when I went up and, and spent time with Andy, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I, I had a near death experience, uh, drowning in Hawaii, uh, a couple of years ago. And it was, I mean, it was the closest I have come to death, and it was the only time where I truly felt like I lost control. Mm. And it it has. I mean, it was very traumatic for a period of time. Um, it took it took some time for me to integrate the experience and figure out like what am I going to glean from this and how mm. am I going to grow from it. And what it comes down to for me is that I, you know, I. I sp- was with my kids. I mean, the, the, what I experienced drowning was a, uh, a moment of surrender and, mm. um, you know, surrendering to a higher power mm. and, and a feeling of serenity and, and peace and calm. And I, I was with my children and, you know, it's, it's like ineffable mm. to, wow. to kind of do it justice and describe it. But, you know, I felt, I felt like I was with my kids. Um, I mean, it's the only way that my human voice can, can, uh, can kind of do it justice. And, you know, it's, it was, it was so impactful for me because it allowed me to gain control over the way that I see my life and what's important, what matters, because in that moment, nothing else mattered to me, you know, all I wanted to, all I wanted to do is be with my, my son and my daughter mm. and, and the feeling of having them with me, um, in that experience, you know, it was a feeling of total completeness, you know, so they were, you mentally, right. You, you were, you were in a mental state or how, however that would even work, but you were in a mental state. <laughs> To where even in the midst of drowning, you were thinking about your children. If I, oh, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw them in front of me. I saw them with me. Mm-hmm. I could feel them with me. It's, it's no, it would be no different than the way that I feel when I'm laying in bed in the morning and I have them under each arm and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just enjoying the moment and the feeling of having, you know, you know, my eight-year-old and my four-year-old, you know, resting against my chest and mm-hmm. just, just enjoying the moment. It was, it was just a feeling of total total peace and total comfort for me. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it seems very simple, right? I mean, you know, it, it seems very simple uh, until you experience that 
that at the moment of your expected death. Because I, you know, prior to, to really surrendering uh, to the concept of death, um, you know, I was fighting, you know, I definitely, I went through a period where I, like I had to reconcile with the fact that I was likely going to drown <laughs> and I can fight in, as long as my body will let me fight. But there will be a moment where, you know, my, my physical body isn't going to be able to keep my, 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 my head afloat um, or keep me away from, you know, the rocks that I was getting thrown into, you know, so I, I, there was a moment of, you know, surrender to the concept of death and, uh, and transitioning into a, you know, I, 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 I believe in God um, mm -hmm. firmly and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. I know. And respect everybody's beliefs, but you know, for me, this was, this was proof of God mm -hmm. and, and I experienced uh, something that I know was real and I know represented uh, um, the manifestation of God's love mm -hmm. in, in my, you know, the love that I have for my children. And, and, and that's why, you know, I was shown my children because I think that it was in a way it was, it was God showing me that, you know, that that love, that kind of eternal love that we will all be embraced by at some point is manifesting itself in our lives right now while we are living and breathing in this human body. Mm. And uh and I I I respect that now. And I I frame my entire life around that. You know, my you know, I look for I look for that eternal love in my life right now. You know, I'm really focused on on I'm not waiting for the eternal uh in the moment of death and beyond mm -hmm. but but living my eternal right now <laughs> and uh that's 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 how I mean that's the best way that I can describe it for you Chad <laughs> that's powerful uh it it reminded me of a book that I read and I and I believe the book is called Falling Upward and in what he does and he's actually a Franciscan monk, a Catholic Franciscan monk. So he, he's a monk who lives under the Franciscan order. And so the book is called Falling Upward. And he talks about the spirituality of the two halves of life. And so what he talks about in the beginning is, in just a very rudimentary way of explaining this, um, is in the first half of life, we are so consumed with trying to form our identity or find out what our identity is. And we have a false self and we're trying to pursue a, a true self. And we just don't know what that is. We can't find it ourselves. Like, because, you know, we're just, we're just human, human beings, broken human beings. So we can't find it. So what he uh, puts out and it's a theory, but what he puts out is that for us to enter into the second phase of life where we stop trying to define what is identity, what, what is this? He says there's a death oftentimes, and maybe mm -hmm. it's a death of a loved one or a near-death experience, or, or it's, it's an event. Maybe it's even having a child to where it's the death of selfishness, where you realize, mm -hmm. whoa, man, I need to live. I'm, my life is, is not just about me anymore. So there could be all sorts of positive and, and, and negative things that we would experience as human beings that shift us, this death that he talks about. But the second half of life is when we already know what our identity is and then we're living out of the fullness of our purpose. Yeah. Oh man. I, I, I feel that. I mean, like I, I literally, like when you say those words, I feel it because that's the difference between where I was a few years ago and where I am right now is that I, 
I, I feel, I feel, <laughs> I feel God's love. You know, oh, man, I, I, I never, I never, uh, I never would have said that, you know, and people may listen and say, Hey man, he's crazy. And he's, he's a, he's a crazy, uh, he's a crazy God person. Right. <laughs> that's <laughs> but, fine. But I am I'm too. Like, so if they, if they're judging you, they're judging me. Uh, that's uh, but I, I, I'll tell you, man, Eileen, I, I was not a crazy God person. You know, I grew up Roman Catholic and I have not, you know, I had not been to church in 15 20 years on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and where, what I've experienced and what I have felt, I would frame as a spiritual awakening for me. And the difference between then and now is feeling. So I could have talked about God. I could have talked about scripture. I could have Mm -hmm. told you all the stories that we read in the Bible growing up and told you that I believe, I I never stopped believing in God. I'm like, Oh, I believe in God. And you know, I, I was true to my faith, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel my faith at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the way that I feel it now. And I, I, you know, when I meditate, med- meditation for me is synonymous with prayer. It's mm-hmm. an opportunity for me to connect with truth and truth for me is love and love manifests itself in all of us, uh, in, in, in the experiences that we have with those that we love, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our kids, our, spouses our parents our friends Mm. and uh and i i've just recognized that as like that's you know that's what god is you know i'm not i'm not looking for god outside of me i'm not looking at for god elsewhere because you know god's alive within me Mm. and uh you know that's a powerful thing for me and it's not something that i can even convey appropriately to Mm. anybody because you need to feel it. And I didn't feel it before. And I, I do now. Uh, wow. <laughs> I needed the sledgehammer to the head, which was the actual <laughs> Who doesn't? experience. So <laughs> at, at some point, I, you know, in my life, I just wonder is, is there, I mean, how big does that sledgehammer need to be? Like, seriously, <laughs> like how does, how big does it need to be for me to get the point? Because it seems like I just keep getting drilled to try and learn the point. Like yeah. I, I just, I miss it over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're human, you know, and, you know, and it's not my, my choice uh, to determine what, what size tool is, is required to, to make me finally feel and understand. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, that you are in the place that you are and it's refreshing and uh, everything talking about your journey. I'm so thankful that you came on the show today and and just kind of, I mean, we could have gone for hours and hours and hours and more <laughs> and, uh, and I'm tempted to, but, um, I want to honor your time and, and mine as well. So uh, I do want to say thank you so much for your service. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing your journey with us and we're better for it. And it's good to know you. Oh, it's an honor to know you and an absolute pleasure being on today. Thanks for listening to the new kind of man podcast. You've been given some good manly encouragement, and now it's your turn. If you found today's content helpful, go tell a friend, and please leave us a review. Also, consider hitting that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. Now it's time for all of us to do what Theodore Roosevelt said. Create. Act. Get action. Do things. Be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Take a place wherever you are and be somebody. Get action.